sound of sensation across the nation. Listen to Radio Goodies. Boom. I'm Rob. And unfortunately, Tom has been abducted by aliens this week, so won't be joining us. But this week we are doing episode 67, which is U-Friend or UFO, mm. sometimes known rather unimaginatively as Close Encounters, but first broadcast on the 4th of February, 1980, Monday at 8.10pm. Gents, this is one of my personal, if not my personal favourite, partly because of the source material partly because of just what it does with that source material. But I really, really enjoy this one. Rob, what about you? I haven't watched this for a very long time, and when I did watch it a couple of nights ago, I too enjoyed it. I think there are a couple of elements that don't quite work for me. I think it tails off a little bit towards the end. But overall, it's at least a very strong first half. So, yeah, it was great to see it again. I really enjoyed it. I had a lot of fun watching this one. Well, let's crack in. It opens in a very dark and mysterious sort of setting. And let's just comment on that. The lighting and the way this has been shot is really, really atmospheric and really moody, so good call on doing that. It opens with the Salvation Army playing Onward Christian Soldiers until a UFO comes over and kidnaps the trombone player. We don't actually know it's a UFO initially. No, so some, right, yeah, something the mysterious. Green, the green light the green comes light, yeah. It's a really different sort of opening for the goodies. As I say, it's very dark, very mysterious, and kind of sci-fi. Certainly, as you say, it's a different tone, and I think that makes makes the whole sequence work. You watch Bill as he's just walking through the town and he sees the second bloke be abducted. And then, obviously, they do the joke where there's the bloke in the toilet. But yes, in the outhouse. In the outhouse, yes. yes. Have you got a trombone in there? <laughs> Dad? Yeah. Well, she's carrying three large empty cans of beans. So. <laughs> so they do do a good gag there. And I think, I do like later on when they pay it off where they say, but what about the guy in the outhouse? Mm, artistic license. <laughs> Which is really clever. Then we get the news reporting. 76 trombones missed the big parade today. <laughs> and it all goes on from there. It's really, really good. So the setting is at Nutter's Knoll. Yes, which is the goodies venture this week, yes. uh, which is the Nutter's Knoll night spot. K, K, K. And look, it's set on a mountain that is very clearly meant to be the Devil's Tower in Wyoming. Yes. Uh, which I have visited. I have been ah. to the Devil's Tower. And it is a really, really strange place to visit. Eerie, mysterious. It is really eerie mysterious because you, you drive sort of over the horizon and then you sort of see it. There's nothing else for miles around. Like, it just stands out in the mm. horizon. And then, yeah, as you walk around and it's just this really sort of mysterious, eerie, some might say spiritual, but whatever it is, it's, mm. it's really got a presence there. It's, and, it's, and it is huge. Okay. And it is huge, yeah. Interesting. Hmm. And, of course, it was the setting used for the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Is this where this episode got its inspiration from? <laughs> so let's talk about that for a moment, because look, the first half of this, and probably the last part as well, it does come back to being very much a uh, homage slash piss take <laughs> from the Japanese pistake. <laughs> <laughs> the goodies version of, yes. yes, of Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which, of course, was the Spielberg movie released in 1977. Yeah. Starring Richard Dreyfuss, um, obviously directed by Spielberg. Very good movie. 
Mm. And, and a big cultural phenomenon at the time. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Unfortunately, probably blown out of the water by another sci-fi movie that came out that year. But uh, Yes, which uh, also gets a reference. But we've mentioned this before, and we'll talk about this probably a bit more next week. But again, we're seeing that issue of the delay in production of this season, meaning that references that were maybe a year or so old at the time they were going to back this yes. are now two, two and a half years old by the time it's actually made. I think it works. I mean, mm. we're watching it in 2018 and that stands up. Yeah. Mm. But you can't see that delay. So, of course, we mentioned the Goodies new venture, the Nutter's Knoll Night Spot, which is a classy restaurant that Tim <laughs> wants to open on top of the tower. It appears to be a business that has no longevity because it's on the top of a messar, I suppose you'd call yeah. it. Yeah. And it appears to be very difficult to get to. Yeah, and they do mention they had the druids in on the opening night because ah, we're jumping ahead. But uh, then the next morning they get the tramps, obviously, who finish their night shift in the park. <laughs> yes. Come in for breakfast and are served a cheeky little meth. <laughs> 1979 vintage. <laughs> but we see Graham working on some sort of project under the covers, and we get another iteration of his just needs a little bit of adjustment, some very delicate work here, and then goes to it with a jackhammer <laughs> and reveals probably the most memorable aspect of this episode. Yes, which is, of course, uh, well, they call it EBGB. <laughs> yes, Electronic Brain of Great Britain. <laughs> but uh, it is basically R2-D2. Well, not basically. It is R2-D2. <laughs> <laughs> we were discussing before we turned the mic on, we actually don't know for sure whether that is an actual prop that was in Britain at the time for the mm. filming of the Star Wars saga or it was something the BBC made. But if it was made by the BBC, it is very, very good. Yeah, I'm not sure. I had the sad fanboy note, or the rather pedantic note, that I actually think it's a fraction on the large size in terms of scale. I think I think it's a little bit bigger than the normal R2-D2 prop. And you notice there actually seems to be a power cord trailing out of the back of it yeah. to operate, make the lights and everything work. But it does certainly have the sort of solidity to the prop that you wouldn't necessarily associate with something that was just knocked up for the end. No, for sure. Plus, the other thing to remember is that according to International Movie Database... Kenny Baker did actually appear in this episode. Yeah. Now, it notes there that it is an uncredited appearance. Uh, Wikipedia says it is as well, but I'll take IMDb over Wikipedia. I know it's not mentioned in Andrew Pixley's book, and we'll put yet another shout-out to that. Yeah, which is interesting, because, I mean, if they've got Kenny Baker actually to work the prop, you wonder if it's actually the prop. The legend was, I remember years ago, that it was an R2-D2 prop and that mm. Kenny Baker was inside Mm. Now, whether that is just legend and you know, IMDb has been added to by somebody who doesn't know what they're talking about, which happens, I don't know. Yep. But let's face it, who cares? It looks really, really cool. It looks fantastic, actually. And they mine oh, EBGB for just gold of jokes. Well, yep. he is. During the episode, he's a bin, he makes the tea, he's a vacuum cleaner, he's a washing machine, he has a ray gun, of course he does his <laughs> Dalek impression, and at the end he actually even works as a fruit machine. <laughs> that's right, yes. Three lemons, wasn't it? Yes, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Yeah, so they get a lot of work out of that. They stick with this idea of trying to run the cafe or whatever you want to call it for a little while. They do the setup that Graham says, well, EBGB could run the cafe single-handedly and they could open a whole chain of restaurants up and down the country. Like McDonald's hamburgers? No, not much. <laughs> Me either. <laughs> Bill, of course, while all this is going on, Bill is obsessed with the disappearances. And he has the little scene where he's driving in the van. It's a straight lift from a scene in close encounters where you see the light in the yes. back of the truck come up and of course their version is the empty van that just rolls into the back of him that contained trombone players yes <laughs> yes a joke the simpsons will do about 20 years later as well where it has the violin section of the symphonic <laughs> orchestra in the back 
Yeah, really, really good. But Bill is now getting very obsessed by what's going on. He's got the list of all these people who've disappeared and he's he's trying to find some connection between them. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, this is the part where Tim does serve the cheeky little meths. <laughs> Nutter's Knoll is obviously an area that's very popular with uh, what we might call fringe groups. <laughs> because you go out there and there's a very nice sign. They'll have allocated times like there's the druids, there's kite flyers, there's the grass skiers. Grass skiing? <laughs> yeah, flashes, um, <laughs> we see in the episode, UFOologist. And then the next one actually is dirty persons. <laughs> and then tramps. <laughs> and the tramps have like the midnight to 7am shift. <laughs> Were druids a thing in late 70s Britain? Yeah, all starts to blood. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> the yeah, obligatory yeah, Doctor Who reference. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there was definitely a bit of a pop culture trend towards it. It's much like there was with witchcraft back when we did the witchcraft episode. Yeah. Not to mention Arthur C. Clarke doing all this stuff on Stonehenge and yes. all that sort of stuff, which we'll talk about in the future. Yes, which we'll get to in a few weeks. Well, did Leonard so. Nimoy do uh, In Search of... Was it in the 70s or in the 80s? No, it's in the 70s. Yeah, so, I mean, I remember just looking at the whole zeitgeist at that time about UFOs. I remember mm. being a an avid reader of UFO magazines and the books Charles Burlitz and all that sort of thing. Oh, yeah. And uh, being completely freaked out one night of reading an article about UFO abduction. And it really permeates this episode to an extent. What ends that, though, wonderful scene when they're out on the knoll in the mists, in the dark, (laughs) is the mysterious being that Bill sees that uh, chases him away until they break into the house. And it turns out to have been Graham. Yes, him and the flashes. (laughs) (laughs) I love the bit where the flashes come running away from Graham and one of them just stops to bend his middle flash and then runs And then off. runs screaming towards the camera. <laughs> now, we laugh about the flashes. Today we chase them out of town, basically. Yes. But, uh, again, it must have been a 70s UK thing. Oh, well, it happened here too, I think. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. You, you notice, though, the flashes there are actually fully clothed <laughs> under the coats. They've sort of got the dirty Mac on. And <laughs> Mustn't be too much of a difference between the flashes and dirty people. <laughs> Maybe they're the ones who have nothing on underneath, so... After chasing Bill back to the uh, Nutter's Knoll Cafe, we find out that, of course, it is Graham in his UFO spotter's gear. His UFO spotter's outfit. (laughs) (laughs) Complete with the beret, the glasses, the detecting equipment, and uh, talking in the UFO spotter's voice. Yes, because normal human voice interferes with the equipment. Yes, I think you've heard all UFO spotters talk like this. Uh, No, (laughs) so they do. (laughs) I must admit, I was just almost on the floor laughing during that whole thing because it's just taking that entire sort of trope and you know, those sort of, shall we say, fringe theory people yes, and just taking the piss really, really well. Mm. And Graham is using all of his physical and verbal comedy to pull it off and Tim is a perfect foil in this case. I mean, they're working really, really well together. Yeah, mm. they get to do the really obvious joke where they're so busy looking at the equipment they don't notice that Bill's been abducted. Yes. <laughs> oh, I thought we had a flicker there. <laughs> oh, no, maybe, maybe. No. <laughs> Graham's gift of mimicry or, you know, voice artistry is really strong and you can see it here. Bill's sent back by the UFO, though, with reject stamped on his forehead. <laughs> Smudged reject, for the looks yeah. of it as well. <laughs> so... So, of course, they now obviously know that the aliens are there. We cut to what's a very sort of small mission control, really, where Graham now has his equipment set up back in the office. Yeah, that's right. I hadn't realised until I watched it closely this time that that was actually in the office. Oh, so they're not in the cafe? No, it's in their office. It's just in a corner of that set. Yeah, it is, because you then look out the window and they're actually looking out towards the knoll. 
Okay. And then you can see mm. the little sort of model building on the top. Now, of course, they go through and they can see the splodge on the screen that represents the aliens. Yes, classic <laughs> 1970s technology. <there. laughs> Tim getting upset that the aliens can see him. Yes. They're freaking out, really. Yeah. <laughs> and then Graham doing all the, uh, all the toy. Hello, aliens. <laughs> <laughs> and then, yes, how do you speak to aliens? Where EBGB upsets them because he does his Dalek impression. Yes, I suppose um, it's the obvious joke to make, but um, well, it gets a huge cheer from the audience as well because he's, he's got the Dalek, you know, sink plunger. Yeah, and the three boys just stand there and just clap, they just clap like this. Looks <laughs> so, a bit odd, but yeah, yeah, I suppose they're acknowledging the obviousness of it, but yeah. And then, of course, we start to see the aliens having an influence on TV. We see the news program with its logo now changed into Nutter's Knoll. We see the Potter's Wheel that's making the... Which, again, I guess, is straight out of Close Close Encounters, where he makes the mound of mashed potato, which Bill Usler does uh, earlier in the story where he gives the plate of Nutter's Knoll-shaped food to the tramps. But, of course, the aliens clearly are getting their ideas on human culture (laughs) on television. (laughs) Oh, no. They might think we're a race of Nicholas Parsons. (laughs) (laughs) Fair comment. (laughs) (laughs) They'll wipe us out. (laughs) This is probably where the episode takes a bit of a sharp turn, Yes, I think, where they have to go out and prove that they're supermen. Oh, look, I'll I'll disagree with you slightly. It does take a turn, but I don't think it's all that sharp because if they're doing... Uh, the blockbuster films of that era. Mm. So they've done Close Encounters, they've done Star Wars, we need yeah. to go and do Superman as well, I think is a very natural extension of that. And so, yeah, we should probably talk about those movies that it is now referencing as well, which are the Dick Donner Superman movies, mm. in particular the 1978 film Superman or Superman the movie is it's sort of known now. That was certainly out and had been out in Britain for some time when this episode aired. Superman 2, which was meant to be made at the same time uh, if it wasn't for certain production issues uh, between the studio and Dick Donner. That was scheduled for release. I suspect that the, the promos would have been around Britain at the time of this episode. Certainly was being written, certainly when it came out. It wasn't out in time for this, but again, that just ensured that Superman you know, was very much in the zeitgeist at the time. Same as Close Encounters, the same as Star Wars. And of course, Empire Strikes Back is due in Britain the same year this comes out. Yeah, uh, I don't think it was out quite, but again, the publicity that you know, the second yeah, start that was would certainly know it was coming. Yeah, it was coming. So yeah, all, all these things I think are in the pop culture, and I think they all mash together really, really well. And the Superman stuff, I don't think on that stage it's welcome. Like they, they they do a bit of reference to it, they get in the gear, they do a few gags, and then they kind of move on. I did actually quite like the bit with Tim with the rocket strapped to him. <laughs> I don't think I watched an S really. <laughs> the look of relief when he jumped into the water. Look like a genuine look of relief. <laughs> <laughs> but that doesn't work, so they need to send somebody up to communicate with the aliens. Yes. Enter Super Nun. <laughs> yes. A reference now to a slightly less contemporary show. <laughs> slightly. <laughs> yes, being The Flying Nun, which actually went for 85 episodes from 1967 to 1970. Mm-hmm. A quite little almost show where the conceit was that the nun's uh, habit was so big and her body mass so small that under certain conditions she could glide. Sally Fields. Yes, yeah, that's right. Sally Fields. Yes, I, I will say that when it was on endless repeats in the 80s, a little bit of me died every time I watched it because <laughs> it was the only thing I could watch with a two-channel environment. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> what, it was that old play school or something? Oh, wasn't that? Something, I yeah. <laughs> yeah, back at the time, and let's face it, we were still getting Mr. Ed repeats up until about 1990, so... Yes, and true. And Lucy and all that. But, look, again, The Flying Nun is one of those things, I think even now, 
even if you don't know who Sally Fields was per se, or you haven't seen it per se, a lot of people would still know that what the Flying Nun was like a thing. It's like a joke mm. that's been out there for a long time. Plus, they do tie it into the Superman stuff. They do the quote, you believe a nun can fly, which yes. obviously the tagline for Superman was you'll believe a man can fly. Yes, they do the whole stuff where he can leap tall spires in a single bound stronger than five archbishops. Yeah, which I think this is classic goodies reverently. Yeah, yeah. I, I really like much. it. Especially punching the bishops in the face. Just hit one and all of them fall over. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they need to launch Tim slash Supernun into orbit. On what is meant to be a peace mission. Yeah. <laughs> Stripping a device to yes, it. Except Graham puts a nuclear warhead on. Yes, which Bill doesn't realise until he gets back to the uh, mission control. That there is a five megaton nun, son. <laughs> I didn't know the nun was loaded. <laughs> boom, boom! <laughs> oh dear. And yeah, look, really good stuff, you know, where Graham's doing the. What? I don't know anything about this. I'm just a loony scientist. Get him! Get him! Kill him all! <laughs> of course, they launch Bill up to attempt to rectify the situation and they wind up playing Space Pong. <laughs> I would agree with what you said earlier that this is the one area of the episode that has quite dated. Mm. But people still know what Pong is. It's still something that people are aware of. Oh, for sure. And at the time, it gets a huge laugh from the audience. Of course, they succeed in knocking Tim out of orbit or away from the spaceship. Bill comes back down. Now we have the moment where the spaceship lands and they attempt to make contact. Now, that's a really nice piece of model work, I have to say. That, mm. that yeah. ship that comes over, that's not much less in quality than what was actually in Close Encounters. It is a very nice model and the shot is composed very well, which is a little bit surprising for TV, mm. but it's very well done. For those who are fans of Black 7, you may recognise the spaceship turned upside down. It is the dome from the first episode of Black 7. The dome itself. The yes. dome itself, the city that they live in. <laughs> yeah. Good old BBC recycling <laughs> stuff, eh? That's right. <laughs> I definitely agree with you, Rob, and I think we do need to mention the production values on this episode, I think are really, really good. And you really get a feeling, as you said, that everybody working on this one has really got what they're trying to do and is going that extra little mile to make it work really, really well. Yeah. Whether it's the camera people, the editing people, the lighting people, the special effects people... There is this feeling that everybody's doing a little bit extra to really make this look almost cinematographic. Yeah, I mean, especially the night sequences, it's definitely shot at night. You see some shows from this era and before where it's clearly done in the day and they put the filter on the yeah, camera yeah. and it looks awful. I mean, if you watch, say, The Champions, yeah. um, it's just awful. But here, it really adds to the atmosphere mm. very much. Now, of course, when the ship lands, they, they do another straight lift from Close Encounters where they're using the musical tones to establish communication. So Bill on the trombone starts with Colonel Bogey. Yep. He then goes on to the goodies theme. Now, the next one I didn't get, but Richard, you've got. It's uh, Coronation Street, I think. I don't mind, I didn't get that one. Yep. And then they respond with the Liberty Bell March. Yes. Or, as most people would know it now, the theme to Monty Python's Flying Circus. (laughs) Yes. Which again gets a cheer from the audience. Which is interesting because it's actually about five or six years since Monty Python went off the air. And in an era where there's very few TV repeats, it's interesting that it's stuck in the minds of the audience. Though, given the fact that there's a lot of movies coming out through Monty Python, I suppose that... I suppose it's a memorable piece of music, too. And, I mean, Monty Python did make a big impact, so... Mm. And I think if you're going to remember anything from watching Python, it would be that opening sequence, that music, that that was very memorable. And I would suspect anybody who is a big enough fan of the goodies to go and get a ticket to watch the filming of an episode probably is also quite... or or was quite a dedicated Python fan. But, I mean, you're right. Well, let's face it, nothing in here is particularly fresh. Well, R2-D2 is probably the most. <laughs> Pong, maybe, but yeah. Yeah, no, you're right. 
after establishing contact, Bill gets to give a very big and powerful speech about how they, oh, they only came in peace, and then some people just tried to blow them out of the sky, and <laughs> Graham's looking very, very guilty. <laughs> and he makes reference to them being the only other intelligence in the universe. Yes. Yes. There is no one else out there. Can I just give credit there to Bill Oddie? Somebody who we haven't always been that big in digging up during this podcast, because, look, Graham Garden sort of overshadows the others. Tim gets a lot of leads in these things. We've said that before, and it's worth mentioning again, when Billy's given the leads in these things, he really pulls it out. And given this dramatic speech, he almost doesn't get any gags himself through this. He's the butt of gags, no. but he plays it sort of straight. You know, he's, he's the Richard Dreyfus character, and he plays it like that right through this episode. And he actually gives a really good performance. Yeah, I agree. As you say, it's not often that he's the lead in the show, and I think we've mentioned it a few times during our episodes, that when he is given that opportunity, and I suppose it's, it's within his personality, just thinking about Bill and his life, he's probably a more serious fellow mm. off stage than mm. on, even though he tends to corpse during the recording of episodes. But <laughs> given the opportunity, he takes it with both hands, doesn't he? Oh, he does, he does. I think he's really, really good here. This is a really good episode for yeah. all of them, but particularly Bill. Richard, do you want to take us through the conclusion? about to have the big moment where he goes and establishes actual contact with the aliens and they look up in the sky it's a bird it's a plane it's a nun (laughs) (laughs) and of course tim's orbit has finally decayed enough that he now comes back down to earth is it burnt up or anything like that he's on no he's on a one-way mission to destroy and unfortunately his five megaton bomb explodes yes q credits Uh, cue disturbing footage from uh, tests. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Probably Marilinga or something. Yeah, when in doubt, just detonate a nuclear weapon and cut to black. Right. Yeah. Blow them all up. Yeah. How many times now is that that they've used an atomic device to make? <laughs> it's, it's enough to be a trope one day. Yes, I think so. <laughs> Look, I have said before, I, I'm not claiming this is the best episode of the goodies. I think objectively you can't make that claim. But personally, because of the source material and what they do with it, this, this is a personal favourite of mine. I really like it. It's really pleasing to see that this far into their run, remember this is now 10 years since they began. Yes. They're still able to pull out a really good episode. A very good episode, a well-written and well-performed. And as you were saying earlier, Dave, um, in terms of its staging, a really good episode. Mm. Uh, Clearly they're still loving what they're doing and it shows. All right, well then, before we go into our regular segments, we've got an interesting little conundrum here. Richard, you've got down in your records that this wasn't cut here. My, my notes are that it wasn't cut. But the version that I watched, which was an off-air recording, was definitely cut because the entire scene with the flashes was all completely gone. And certainly I don't remember seeing that flashes scene until I saw another friend's copy a few years ago. I didn't remember that scene at all. So I reckon that that was cut at least on one of the screenings here. Could possibly be something like Romantics. When it was first shown here, it was edited. And then in the later runs, were shown uncut. So it's whether it's one they actually got a, an unedited copy later on, maybe. Mm, a mystery to solve. Mm. Perhaps one of our <laughs> listeners can, uh, can contact us and tell us what, what versions they may have memories of. On yeah. that note, we will move on to our regular segments. So, tropes and first. Well, we've covered the nuclear weapon. Yes. Tim oh. having another breakdown, I'm a teapot, I'm a teapot. Yes. yes. There's Nicholas Parsons' joke, obviously. Patrick Moore, clearly. Yes. Tim Matt. in drag, yet again. Graham doing a mad scientist. Yes. Yes, and his delicate adjustment joke. Yes. What couldn't you get away with today? I'm pretty happy with this yeah, one. Yeah, I don't know there's anything that you struggle with, with now. The flashes? Is it a tame version of that sort of thing? The, the, the flashes, look, I think it 
was very much a staple of 70s comedy. Yeah. It's very Benny Hill. I don't think you couldn't get away with it today. It's not something you'd do today, because I think it is quite dated, but I don't think you couldn't get away with it. Yeah, true. Flashes, 9 till 10. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> and we'll move on to our favourite gags. Rob. Just a little one here. Bill screaming up into the sky, take me, take me. <laughs> and then a man just in a man in a lovely lamb's wool jacket appearing out of the dark. <laughs> and puts his hand on his shoulder and says, hello. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought that was really funny. Richard? I've got a couple. I very much like the moment where Tim's serving the method of the tramps. But I'll probably pick Graham's puns around super nun, I think. <laughs> that there is a five megaton nun, son. <laughs> I was almost going to go for some of the stuff with Graham and Tim talking about the UFO spotting, because I think it's a really funny segment. I've got to go for some of the EBGB jokes, like the bit where suddenly they're in the middle of something and Graham just uses EBGB as a dustbin or you know, uses him as a vacuum cleaner. They all come from nowhere. They're not telegraphed, they're not flagged. They're just really good prop gags, visual mm. gags, and I just laugh out loud every time I see them. Particularly because it is R2-D2. Like, mm. He's an iconic movie robot. Do you think Disney would allow you to do something like that now? No. No. Not Straight a up, chance. No. no. <laughs> Look, we've all had a lot of fun with this one. I think it is very well deserving. And as you said, Rob, we're now into their eighth series, well and truly. Mm. And they're still doing episodes that can count in our top five as well. Look, this is in my top five. That, I think that, yeah, it's a really big deal. Probably not in my top five, but no, I really enjoyed this. Look, I had a renewed appreciation for it, having, again, as I said before, not watched it for many, many decades. It's uh, it's very strong. A couple of bits where it, I think it flags, but overall, again, late in their run, very late in their run, it's really good. Mm. Well, we'll be back next week with another episode I'm very much looking forward to discussing, which is animals. So, on your way to find a new home, because danger's coming. You might take a walk <laughs> in the Black Forest. <laughs> You've been listening to the Goodies Pirate Podcast, the Australian podcast that puts the good in goodies. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please do leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode or your thoughts on upcoming episodes. So please drop us a line by email at pirategoodiespc at gmail.com. Send us a tweet at at pirategoodiespc or find us on Facebook at facebook.com stroke pirategoodiespc. Goodies, goody, goody, yum, yum. Trying to make contact. <clears throat> Hello, aliens. Hello, aliens. Good morning. How are you? Oh. EBGB, how do you speak to aliens? Exterminate. Exterminate.